Josh, you, you got a nice new haircut. I did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, it's been probably three months since I got a haircut. So on the weekend, I ordered a uh, set of clippers off of Amazon, and uh, I was actually going to get my fiance to uh, cut my hair for me. But when my clippers came in yesterday, I just got too excited to try them that I just went ahead and, and started. And you know, once once you do like the one um, one one pass, you have this you know huge area. You can't, that's you can't yeah. Do the rest, right? So <laughs> you have to do the rest, otherwise you'll have a patch in your hair, and that doesn't look patch. good. That's yeah. the word I was looking for. <laughs> Josh, I I did something. Recently, I actually went back and rewatched all of the podcast episodes that we have. Um, you watched all hundred of them. <laughs> yeah, I watched all two of them. But what I noticed, there's a huge challenge with ums and ahs and those filler words. It's such a challenge to get past those filler words. I don't know if you've had that same experience, but. Well, it's funny. So, you know, after we just said, you know, after we uh, filmed the first one, I noticed that I said like a lot and yeah. I don't know if that's how I always talk or if I just said that a lot during the show. Um, open the feedback on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. I, I, all I know is that when it's on this video forum, that's kind of the, one of the main challenges is catching yourself saying um and ah all the time. Another really big challenge that I was thinking about is readmissions. So you were just thinking about ums and ahs and likes, and then your brain just went to readmissions. What happened was I was thinking of the biggest challenge that is, you know, facing us right now in this podcast. And then I was thinking, you know, what is, what's another challenge that's big in the world? And readmissions was just kind of top of mind. So well, speaking of readmissions, Alan. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. Honestly, though, speaking of readmissions, Josh, I know I I talked with you when I first joined the company and you had um, obviously learned about readmissions from your work in the healthcare industry. Uh, but I, I think that you probably have some stories that I don't know about readmissions. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, we touched a little bit on it um, in one of the past shows. Uh, I think for me, my interest really started actually in my, um, I think it was my second year of med school, I want to say. And as part of our training, one of the things that we have to do is an individual research project on um, social determinants of health. So just you know the basic idea that it's not just, you know, medical history that affects your health, it's social history. So it's things like folks coming from, you know, lower income uh, environments or at higher risk of health issues, lower education, health literacy, um and so forth so all kinds of social factors that affect health and i'm trying to remember exactly why but it was really important to me to work on a project that i just personally found interesting i didn't just want to do a project and just get it done um and at the time i was thinking about maybe going into family medicine at some point so you know i wanted to position my my cv a little bit to have something in family medicine uh, but I, I came across some work done by um, Toronto Western Hospital, and I ended up getting put in contact with a fantastic uh, family physician. Her name is uh, Dr. Sabrina Akhtar. And at the time, she was um, getting this house calls program off the ground for the hospital. And, um, you know, I'm not sure how familiar, Alan, you are with 
like doctor house calls at all. I don't know if you've ever even had one before. No. What's interesting is that, um, you know, many, many years ago, house calls were more common and were uh, accessible for most people. So back in the 1950s, let's say, you know, in North America, probably about 40% of physicians did house calls still. Hmm. And what changed over the last 50 years is that medicine became really centralized, both in the hospital and the clinic setting. And I think back in, as of the 2000s, less than 1% of uh, physicians um, did house calls at all in North America. It's maybe even less than that, uh, far less than a percent now. Um, but what I learned from Dr. Akhtar uh, was that um, the, the patients who actually need healthcare or primary care the most often are the ones who have the hardest time getting you know, healthcare. Access. Yeah. Access. Yeah. So you have all these, like, frankly, you and me, Alan, like these, you know, younger, able bodied, able, you know, mentally able to take themselves to a clinic to get care. Um, that's easy for people like you and me, but for folks who are homebound because they're um, particularly frail and elderly, because they have cognitive challenges um, or other just physical challenges, um, they can't come into the clinic to see their doctor. But because of all these other issues that are related, they, they have the highest risk of, of, you know, getting sick and ending up in the emergency department or being readmitted back to hospital because they can't get care when they need it. And so Dr. Akhtar, you know, was trying to fill that gap where she launched a house calls program at Toronto Western, where herself and some other family physicians and residents would actually go to patients' homes and take care of them for the ones who really needed it mm-hmm. so that they wouldn't bounce back to hospital. And so, you know, that got me both interested in readmissions in general, but really got me thinking about, okay, well, like, how do you bridge that gap for these patients who are stuck at home and can't get care? Mm-hmm. So there's always this ongoing challenge in healthcare about, like, well, how do you actually make healthcare accessible and easy and convenient for those who, frankly, like, need it more? Right. And anyway, so, you know, work with Dr. Akhtar got me real interested in, in just, you know, preventing readmissions or just keeping patients healthy at home in general. And then that eventually that interest led me to my work at uh, UHN or Toronto General Hospital, um, where I did formal work on readmissions. Right. So I know, you know, what readmissions are. It makes sense. A patient is readmitted. It's not the hospital or the clinic. Um, why would patients care about readmissions or, or why should patients care and, and, Maybe more broadly, why does the healthcare system care? Why do payers care? Why do providers care? Yeah, well, so the thing about, and maybe Alan, it's okay with you, I'll back up on readmissions in case anyone listening who maybe isn't as familiar with sure. what is a readmission and, and what it takes. So, uh, you know, imagine you, you end up in hospital because you're having surgery or because you're, you're, you're ill with a heart attack and you stay for, you know, several days or even weeks sometimes. When we send a patient home after they recover, the truth is that you're not 100% back at your baseline. You know, we discharge you as soon as you're reasonably safe to go home, you're stable. Because the truth is that um, bed capacity is almost always at 100%. We, we're trying to let, get patients home so we can let sicker patients in to take care of them. So when you go home, you're not 100%. And typically, you're probably not back at your normal healthy baseline for maybe a couple weeks, maybe a month. Um, so that first, you know, four weeks when you leave hospital, you're, you're still at a risk of, of problems happening, maybe an infection or other issues related to why you were in hospital in the first place. And so, um, you know, if the patient gets sick again, maybe maybe they had a surgery and their incision gets infected and they don't catch it in time, they might end up back in hospital and readmitted. And um, 
you know, the hospital or, or you know, the payer, the government cares about readmissions because uh, they're costly. Uh, so the average readmission typically costs about $10,000 at least. Um, and uh, that's very expensive. Uh, and it's often preventable. So for example, let's say you did develop an infection um, at your incision that spread to the rest of your body and that's why you're readmitted. Well, if you had caught the infection earlier, maybe you could have treated it with oral antibiotics and the patient would have gotten better, they wouldn't have ended back in hospital. Um, so there's a major cost issue there um, for you know, hospitals and payers. As providers, frontline staff, you, know, you just don't like patients getting sick, right? right. You, you go into healthcare because you're trying to help patients. And if you, as a provider, when you know you could have done something to prevent a patient getting sick, you wish that you did it. Uh, so from, from a quality point of view, we try to avoid readmissions. Um, and then from a patient point of view, I think sometimes there's this um, myth that uh, hospitals are a safe environment. The truth is that hospitals are not a safe environment. You have all you know, these uh, sick patients in there. Uh, there's higher risk of infections being passed in a hospital. I mean, right now, frankly, with COVID-19, um, you know, many parts of the hospital, you're at risk of contracting it. So for, for many reasons, as a patient, you actually don't want to come back to hospital if you don't have to because you're going to put yourself at risk of, of other issues. Right. And so there's definitely a tricky balance there. I know physicians want to keep patients in the hospital longer if they can, because then they can keep their eyes on them and they can monitor the patient right in front of them. Whereas if they send them home, even though it's maybe in everybody's best interest to get them home, they don't have eyes on the patient. So they can't, they can't monitor, they don't know what's going on. And so there is definitely that percentage of patients that's going to come back to the hospital. They know that that's going to happen, but if they can't monitor the patient when they're at home, then they don't know if that's going to be the likely case for that patient. Do you have any thoughts on value-based care or do you, do you have a, an explanation for what that system even is? No, Alan, I, I have no idea what value-based care Never is. Never heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, no, it's, it's all a rage now. And I think, um, you know, the U.S. in particular, when uh, the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare came out, you know, back uh, about, about 10 years ago, part of that, that act was focused on transitioning the payment model to be more value or quality Based and I think um, uh, one of the most prominent examples of that has been uh, the readmission penalties that Medicare and CMS came out with. So you know people might remember, um, gosh, I can't remember what, what year exactly it was, but in the early 2010s when they first started uh, penalizing certain hospitals for readmissions for heart failure um, Medicare patients, and then. Um, and also pneumonia and heart attack patients, and then they added COPD um, and so forth. And now we're seeing more recently with things like bundled payments, um, you know, the costs around readmissions um, are an issue um, for total joints and cardiac surgery. And then I think even with um, uh, payers, insurance, also getting into things like bundled payments with organizations um, and obviously uh, reducing readmissions helps drive down that cost. Um, you know, for the first time, um, organizations uh, not just care from a quality point of view, but care from a financial point of view to stay in contact with patients when they leave hospital and find ways to prevent uh, a readmission from happening. And so, you know, readmissions as a, as a problem aren't new, right? Readmissions have existed as long as you've ever had a hospital and you send a patient home from one. Readmissions technically always existed. It's just that it wasn't until, you know, the Affordable Care Act in the U.S. came up 10 years ago that, um, providers and payers finally cared about actually preventing right. readmissions because, I mean, as much as people in healthcare are well-intentioned, you know, we are rational 
you know, human beings. And unless there's an incentive model um, that incentivizes us to prevent something like readmission or improve quality, it's sometimes hard to, to justify running the organization in a way to do that. But not, now they ha now we have those incentives. And so that's, that's right. kind of why you're seeing all people all of a sudden care in the last 10 years about readmission, mm -hmm. when in fact they've existed for decades. Right. And so bundled payment is that incentive model. So bundled payment covers a certain period of time uh, for the hospital expenses, or how does that work? Yeah, so, you know, um, historically, we're fee-for-service. Um, the government or the payer would pay, the let's say, the surgeons, the hospital, the rehab, SNF facility separately for all the care the patient gets when they're in hospital having surgery, recovering, and then when they, they go home for, let's say, the first 90 days after discharge, but with the bundled payment, the insurer, the government saying, hey, we're going to give you, let's say, 20 grand to cover all the costs for that patient in their hospital and then whatever happens to them in the first 90 days. And if you spend more than that 20 grand, well, then you're paying that extra out of pocket. If you keep it below 20 grand, you can split the extra profit. Mm -hmm. um, you still have to meet certain uh, quality targets. You can't just right. cut the cost and the patient gets right. sick, right? Yeah. Um, but but, uh, but yeah, so for the first time, um, you have, let's say, a surgeon or a hospital saying, hey, you know what, I actually want to know how the patient is doing when they go home. Maybe I'll give them a mm -hmm. call. Maybe I'll reach out to them because if the patient doesn't do well, um, I, I you know, might get dinged for it, right? Mm -hmm. So in the past, if the patient didn't do well and they came back to the hospital and got sick, well, oh, great, that's more, that's more revenue, right? Not in, the, not in the current world. Not in the current world, it's no, they come back. That actually works against it's your, your financial model. Huh. And, I, and I suppose bundled payments also promotes better quality overall and, and actually more than just quality, but it's breaking down some of those silos because you do have to be in contact with everybody and everybody has to be on the same page. Okay, we need to get this patient, you know, healthy, as healthy as we can within this period of time. Um, and so if they're moving from, let's say, in hospital to then going to a skilled nursing facility, we have to be in communication with the skilled nursing facility to make sure that they're doing their job. And so it kind of, it seems like it's maybe a good solution for breaking down some of these silos as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, for example, for the first time, maybe providers uh, want to actively avoid duplicating tests. Right. Uh, because that yeah. cuts into their, their, their margins now, or, you know, maybe for the first time you have, you know, let's say surgeons and anesthesiologists and another allied health saying hey let's come together and implement an enhanced recovery initiative because we know that's going to help drop the cost and improve the quality but we have to but to, in order to implement enhanced recovery we have to all be friends and collaborate mm -hmm. and, and talk and work together uh but it, but it's, it's funny alan right if you change if you change the carrot all of a sudden people's behaviors change i mean it just yep. makes total sense right totally yeah and and on your point about enhanced recovery after surgery uh, a shameless promotion, but we've done a, a really great episode on enhanced recovery. At least I think it's a great episode on uh, enhanced recovery after surgery well, and talk about all those issues. Alan, I, I, I would go as far as to say of all the podcasts that we've done so far, that enhanced recovery uh, show is a top two show of all time. I Yeah, you know, I agree. And I'm already, and maybe this is a bit presumptuous of me, but I'm thinking that this episode would probably make the top three just based on the content uh, uh, and the topic of readmissions, I think that's super important. It just might, and you know what, Alan? I, I think you got to. We have to. Um, you got to add Barack Obama now uh, because he, his his Obama his, got name dropped here. You got to right. hear about it. <laughs> that's a great call. Yeah. Um, 
you mentioned that physicians are now calling to patients because they want to know what's happening with our patients. They want to monitor patients. And um, so that's kind of the next wave of, you know, as we transition to this value-based care, we need a scalable way to engage and, and monitor our patients once they've left uh, our, our facility or our care. How does technology in general, so not just, you know, seamless MD, but how does any technology help with this transition as we move forward to monitoring patients outside of our four walls? Yeah, and I think it helps to start by looking at, you know, before even technology, like what were ways that care teams were trying to address readmission? So, you know, the most basic thing that, that, that we've done uh, as providers is, okay, when the patient's about to go home, we give paper and verbal education to right? We'll say, okay, you know, let's say you've just had a heart surgery. Um, here's a list of the seven things that you should watch out for when you go home. And if, you know, if you get a fever, if your incision looks red, um, if you have difficulty breathing, okay, here's the number to call at our office. And then we'll try to triage that issue. But if something uh, more concerning happens, if you have major sudden chest pain that were, that's similar to, you know, um, like a heart attack ch type chest pain, or maybe if you develop uh, sudden redness and swelling in your calf, which could be a sign of a blood clot, like you should come into the emergency department. So we create, you know, we give patients a list of these symptoms and issues and what to do about them. Um, but, but one of the challenges that we find with paper uh, and verbal, as you know, Alan, is patients forget, they lose right. things. Um, in fact, there's, um, you know, studies done that show between 40 and 80% of what a provider tells a patient, they just forget. Right. Um, so there's that. Okay. So then what's next? Well, then, um, you know, many providers um, do what they call post-discharge phone calls. So uh, usually two to three days after a patient goes home, if you're lucky, someone from the hospital, maybe uh, one of the nurses uh, will give you a call and he or she will go through a script um, asking you, Hey, it's, you know, you're three days out of leaving hospital. How are you doing? Do you have any pain, any nausea, vomiting, signs of a blood clot? Um, you know, how was your incision, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so, so now there's at least a touch point, right? But here's the problem. You know, usually you don't have a follow-up with your, your doctor until maybe a few weeks after you leave hospital. And so even if you're doing well, by the time they call you two to three days after discharge, well, what if something happens to you on day seven, day 10, day 15? And so if, if an incision develops later on and you don't catch it earlier, I'm sorry, an infection develops there earlier, then maybe you end up back in hospital, right, for example. Um, so the point is that, um, you know, we have limited ways historically to engage a patient beyond some verbal, some paper, maybe a phone call. Um, and so it shouldn't be shocking that when patients get ill, they, they frankly don't know any better, and then they end up back in hospital, unfortunately. And I, I imagine a lot of these cases could be avoided as well. If, if there was a way to track patients, they're outside daily or, or even like in real time, then you could either get the antibiotics to them faster so that you, you know, eliminate any infections or. Yeah. Uh, or if they have heart failure, you, you know, um, you know, early signs of uh, potential readmission would be if their weights are trending up, you know, um, for example, you could have caught that weight change earlier and maybe readjusted their, their heart failure medication um, and, and, you know, preventing them from coming back. And, um, you know, here's the thing though, Alan, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a nurse could call a patient every day to ask all those things. Right. But, but that, that's not, that's not, um, that's it's not scalable. Yeah. It's not scalable. Right. I mean, um, th these, these nurses are taking care of so many sick patients already in the hospital. 
and to expect them to suddenly have time in their day to pick up the phone and call 100 patients every day for the next month, well, that that's like more than just a day's worth of work, right? Um, and and not only you, if they call them, whatever the patient answers, you have to you're gonna document every answer and type it all up by hand. Um, and then the data that they're typing up is probably not very useful from a you know monitoring trends point of view because it's all text and then. Well, what if you wanted to actually look at the incision? How are you going to do that over the phone? Mm -hmm. Yeah, right. without them yeah, sending then, text messages, yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, you ask patient to email you. Well, that's not HIPAA compliant, right? right. Um, and so there's all kinds of reasons why you can't just, you can't just do what we, what we currently did, um, you know, uh, manually. It's just not scalable. Mm -hmm. Right. And so there's this list of symptoms that, you know, we're maybe calling a patient about and figuring out, but on one day or two days out of the 30 day period that they're at home before they're back to baseline, for instance. So I imagine the first step that SeamlessMD would have done was to digitize those symptoms or that list uh, that we're tracking from patients. Is that where you started with the, the readmissions kind of um, re reduction efforts? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you. So, you know, um, plug in for episode one about the origins of Seamless. Uh, I'm gonna touch a bit on that. <laughs> um, but, you know, when we started the company, we, you know, initially we're trying to solve um, readmissions for uh, complex chronic diseases such as heart failure because that's where my initial um, interest was. Yeah. And at the time, none of the internal medicine uh, mentors I had were interested uh, in technology like this. And then they kind of suggested I check out surgery, which I did. And, you know, one of the first things I did was I went to PubMed and I searched for surgery readmissions. And I remember I found three specific um, papers that were interesting. And I actually ended up emailing um, the, the principal investigators of all three of those studies. And actually two responded and I spoke with two of them. Um, but one of, the, um, one of those um, groups was actually uh, from Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Mm -hmm. And they actually ended up being um, the, the first clinical partner we ever uh, did anything oh. with. And what caught my eye about the paper was um, the group at Baylor had basically done um, what they called a, a Delphi study on um, common symptoms after colorectal surgery um, and in terms of what should be monitored for preventing a readmission. And I don't know, Alan, are you familiar with the term Delphi study? No. So a Delphi study is basically um, an expert panel or an expert uh, collaboration where you survey, uh, let's say, 10 different um, individuals related to colorectal surgery, and then based on um, their answers, there's a whole, it's called a Delphi method, basically narrowing down their responses to get to a set number of, of options that you want to go with. So for example, what they did was um, they found 10 experts in colorectal surgery and basically surveyed them on, okay, what are the most common symptoms after a colorectal surgery that could be an early sign of a complication or readmission? Um, so there were things like um, fever, you know, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, uh, stoma output um, of a certain amount. And then the other question they had was, well, okay, if a patient has any of these symptoms, what should they do? Should they call in? Should they go straight to the emergency department? So basically, using this iterative Delphi process, they narrowed it down to a list of, of say, 10 symptoms, and they had consensus on, like, okay, if you had one of these issues, mm -hmm. what should the patient do? Right. And I said, that's really interesting. 
And so I reached out and I said, hey, well, what if we, um, you know, took those kind of common symptoms that, that, you, that you had in mind and, and the, um, the workflow you had in mind, um, which by the way, typically this is what would be in a, a paper handout that you get a PI discharge, right? right? Yeah. Uh, for patient. But what if we digitize that on a, on a platform for patients? And so that way, if we recorded their symptoms, we could tell them, hey, you had, you know, um, major chest pain today. You should go to the hospital for this. Right. Um, and then actually see if that helps, you know, prevent, you know, readmissions or ER mm-hmm. visits or just helps the patient um, better understand what to do. Uh, so Baylor College of Medicine was actually our first partner where we um, today, you know, that, that, that was kind of the foundation of what we today call our, our health check um, mm-hmm. in the platform uh, for symptom monitoring, but that was kind of the genesis for it. Um, and the idea was that a patient could just check in every day mm-hmm. on their own and then get guidance. Now, it's definitely evolved since then. So back then when we had our first, you know, ever implementation, there was no one monitoring the data in real time. Obviously, now, as you know, a lot of our customer partners are actually monitoring this data. Um, but conceptually, um, it's the same concept that we started with many years ago. Hmm. And obviously, we've been doing this in multiple specialties, not just colorectal. Um, those health checks are those that, that Delphi kind of consolidated um, uh, symptoms for patients. Do you know, is there a difference in specialty? Obviously, there's no stoma, for instance, in like cardiac care. But Yeah, so I would say that there's certain common ones that are being um, tracked across most, um, let's say, these surgical specialties. So almost every surgical specialty is going to care about things such as, you know, temperature, um, pain, although the location of pain might vary, right. incision, um, health, right. and maybe photos of the incision. So those are probably common ones. And then depending on the, the type of specialty, there might be some unique ones. So you mentioned colorectal, stomach output, and cardiac care might be, you know, a heart rate, for example, or, or, or certain types of uh, chest pain in, you know, knee surgery could be range of motion, how far you can, you know, mm-hmm. uh, flex mm-hmm. or extend your knee. Um, so we are finding that, that clinically there are some unique data points that, that vary, but certainly there is a common set that, that, that I think is universal for most surgical procedures. Wow. And then seamless MD is obviously, you know, come a long way since that first uh, use case that, that you first built out. Um, what's the results been like with readmission reduction? Have we seen any um, like good results in, in reducing readmissions? Yeah, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, um, there's certainly a correlation between um, how much or, or how little of the data you use to address readmission. So, for example, we have some partners where um, they don't have staff available to um, monitor patients when they go home. But in those cases, because we're still giving patients automated feedback on the platform based on their symptoms and their progress. We've seen partners who have no, you know, real-time monitoring reduce readmissions by, uh, you know, let's say 10%. But for those who actually have a provider who's getting alerts and monitoring patients and proactively, you know, reaching out to patients who are sick, you know, at places like Bay State, um, they have seen readmission reductions of, you know, let's say 72%. And that's, you know, great work done by Dan Engelman and Joe Krasafian team there. And then, you know, uh, academically, we've done some great uh, studies as well to, to better measure this. So over at Sinai Health System in Toronto, uh, with the colorectal surgery program there with Dr. Aaron Kennedy and Dr. Alexander Easton, uh, they've done some great work. Where actually, they initially started with a, a pre-post study using Seamless MD um, for monitoring, and they saw a, a readmission reduction of about 66%. 
Um, and then, and actually they published that, that paper actually, um, we can link to that. Um, and then after that, they did a single center um, randomized control trial at Sinai. And um, I don't think that's been um, published yet, but I believe the results have, were also similarly positive. Um, hmm. But I, I think we'll wait for them to release that publicly. Yeah. Um, and then they're actually about to launch a, a multi-center RCT of this initiative to further validate the impact the platform um, can have on readmission. So um, I think we have a lot of data now that shows that it works, but the part of it now is just common sense to me. It's that, you know, if you can monitor a patient and, and catch the issues that prevent a readmission, it's not shocking to me that the results have been so positive. Right. Yeah, and I think it's really neat how you're you're doing both sides. So it's the monitoring and then also empowering the patient. So they they still get that initial, you know, if this, then this. So they get that initial feedback, you know, to monitor themselves, but then also having the care team, they're able to monitor outside the hospital as well. That's pretty cool. Yeah, you know, this is kind of also how our patient experience has evolved and our, our, our learning has evolved. So, you know, in that origin, original uh, work with Baylor, literally it was our V1 of our product um, back, way back when. All that the program did was it collected the symptoms and it spit out feedback to patients saying, right you're fine or call the nurse for this or go to the hospital, but the patient right. got no other real education or context or engagement. Now our platform is, has been so evolved and sophisticated that we actually give feedback to patients on what's going on. So for example, um, you know, if they have something minor such as constipation, okay, well then we actually give them immediate feedback on how do you, um, what is constipation? How do you manage it? How do you avoid it in the future? Um, mm. Or all the way up to, you know, if they're having, um, you know, if they have signs of dehydration or they have signs of a wound infection, we actually give them self-care education on that topic, mm. on what, what, what it might mean, uh, what they should do, but also, you know, like why they should call it, for example. So we're right. giving so much more context to patients than we did before. Mm. Um, and we're finding that patients really value that because, you know, a patient doesn't have 10 years of clinical training to understand what these symptoms right. mean and how they should think about it. They need, they need some of that in a very patient-centric way to be uh, delivered back to them. So that way they actually do call when you want them to, or they, right. they manage at home when you want them to. Right, that's cool. Um, and then obviously with some of these readmissions and you mentioned dehydration and, and other signs, maybe constipation, I imagine there's quite a few patients who traditionally would come back to the hospital because they know something is wrong. They just don't know if it's a serious problem or not maybe they've misunderstood the information or they can't, you know, follow the instructions properly. And I think that's more common than people think it is um, where patients just don't understand what it is that they're supposed to do. And this is all a new experience for them. They're overwhelmed. Um, do you have any indication on what some of the common like root causes would be? Is, is uh, dehydration obviously a pretty big one that comes up or? I mean, the most common reason why patients would come back for something they, they could have taken care of at home are, are, are things such as um, constipation because you're, you know, still getting, you know, some narcotics or opioids after surgery, for example. Right. Um, it does vary between different, um, let's say, surgery or, or, or healthcare conditions. Uh, I will say, you know, a story that I remember is, um, you know, with Dr. Carmine Simone and the work we did with his team at Michael Guerin in, in thoracic surgery. Um, you know, one of the things that, that uh, they presented about um, with the, um, this was published as an abstract in the chest journal, actually. Um, 
they found that through CMLS, they were reducing unnecessary ER visits. And the way they were doing that was um, there are some issues that happen after a, a thoracic or a lung surgery that um, a patient might think in as an emergency because, I mean, without contacts, I, I could see why. Totally. Um, but when they get the actual contacts, they realize it's not. So, for example, patients can, um, they have uh, thoracic surgery, they often go home with chest tubes to basically help drain fluid or, or, or blood from their, their lungs. And sometimes those get blocked. Um, okay. And those are typically non-emergency. And, and usually if a chest tube is blocked, you can actually just come into clinic and then the surgeon will help unblock them and then you're fine. Mm-hmm. But you can imagine as a patient, if, if it's blocked, you're just freaking out because yeah, you, yeah. you may, oh my gosh, it could be an emergency. I, I don't deal with this every day normally as a patient. Right. And, and so what we did is we built into the program a workflow where, okay, we asked the patient, you know, like, is it, is it blocked? Any issues with it? And if it is, they get automated education that, hey, this is not an emergency. Call our clinic. We'll book you in tomorrow. We'll unblock it. Don't panic about this. And they, they weren't having that as an issue anymore in the emergency department. Wow. So basically, we, we figured out, okay, map out all the things that could cause an ER visit or readmission, and then kind of almost preempt the ones that are preventable by just catching it earlier and then just giving the right feedback to patients. Right. And we've been, for as long as the company has been around, we've been interviewing our patients to figure out, you know, what do you like about the platform, but what can be improved? And some of the comments that we have from patients are kind of on that point where, They'll say, you know, the platform actually told me about something that I didn't even know was going to be a question yet. Like I didn't even, I didn't even think to ask this question and it gave me the right education. And now I knew it to self-manage. I didn't have to worry ahead of time. So definitely less anxiety. Um, that's a, that's a big common uh, point of feedback that patients give mm-hmm. all the time. And I can totally understand where that would come from now. Yeah. And then you get providers saying they're getting less calls now about minor things because to your point, we're preempting a lot of questions. Right. Um, and yeah, it is better for the patient experience. I don't, I don't think patients like having to call in to get their questions answered. They, no. in fact, for some patients who um, they're embarrassed or they, they're scared to, you know, take up the doctor's time. Yeah. So they don't ask their questions. And then maybe there are things that they should have asked for if so they went back in hospital, frankly. Right. Um, I know on one of the studies that CMSMD has with McGill University um, around using technology versus an in-person auditor for data collection and, and answering some questions, I think the study showed that CMSMD and the technology actually had 50% more information that a patient would give um, than, than to a person. So that kind of makes sense. If they're calling in, they're, they maybe don't want to take up the doctor's time or the nurse's time explaining all this stuff, but on a platform where it's seemingly more like a, a, a wall that they're talking to that they know that they're being monitored as well. They have more freedom to write whatever they need to write in there and tell all the problems that they're having. Yeah. And the great thing about it too, is that unlike a, a phone call, let's say, let's say the other reverse of that, when a provider would in the past a call to a patient to see how they're doing, there are lots of times where the patient's not picking up. Right. And, and so even on the nursing end, it's a better experience because they don't have to call a patient back, maybe mm-hmm. leave a voicemail and play phone mm-hmm. tag. It's like, no, like wait for the patient to check in, get a notification if you need it, manage the issue. Right. So do you think that readmissions will ever drop to close to 0%? Well, they, they, they will if uh, hospitals don't exist anymore in the future and everyone right. somehow gets all their care at home and you have mobile right 
mobile units to do surgery and everything else you need, which right. by the way, it's, we, we laugh about it, but it's not totally crazy yeah. in the future that everything is as a service. Yeah. It's not going to happen anytime soon, but it would, at the very least make for a great black mirror episode. I was going to say yeah. world where everything is delivered to your home and you don't have to leave your home ever for anything. Yeah. Um, but, but in the near term, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I, and I think, you know, we'll definitely continue to reduce it more safely. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, as we advance things like maybe minimally invasive surgery or other, other ways of doing things to, to make it lower risk for patients, um, right. probably will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, go ahead, Alan. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we've done a lot of work now in the readmission space and, and reducing that. I'll definitely link those case studies in the show notes so people can see, um, you know, what, what actually went into that. I know there's definitely a, a difference. So you mentioned, you know, some groups don't have the staff capacity to monitor patients and actually, um, you know, take a look at the dashboards and, <clears throat> excuse me, see what's going on with each patient after they've left the hospital, but they're still getting that self-management education. So we're, they're still able to reduce readmissions. So there's definitely a balance there where, you know, as long as there is some effort to reduce readmissions by empowering the patients using kind of those, those um, symptom trackings and, and then providing that education versus the full command center, taking a look at patients and, and having the staff resources available. Um, do you see that taking up a lot of time for the staff? So if they actually have to monitor the patients and they're looking at these dashboards, do they, do they provide feedback ever? Do they tell us, you know, it takes up, you know, X amount of time per week versus what I used to do? Or do you have any data on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think the data we have is that most providers are monitoring patients. I think I, I was reading don't spend more than maybe half an hour a week, 45 minutes, something like that in total. Um, and I think it comes down to what the priorities of the organization are. Right. So, you know, if there's a, a priority to actually reduce readmissions and ER visits for some reason, maybe they're in a bundle or affected by penalties, um, I, think, I think they'll reallocate their time to focus on that. Um, it comes down to if it's important or not from a quality or, or a financial perspective. And as it, as it increasingly becomes the case, um, I think you'll find that, you know, 100 years from now, um, healthcare teams might look back at today and say, wow, we didn't monitor patients before? Right. That's so strange. Yeah. Why would we not want to know what's going on all the time? You know, right. um, why wouldn't we care about the whole patient, you know, continuum of care? Why would we only yeah. care about what happens to them in the hospital? So it's crazy to, that, that this was the way right. healthcare was 100 years from now, right? So, yeah. um, I think it's I think it's interesting as well. You, you talk to any physician, you, you mention, you know, do you care about what happens to your patient outside of the hospital? It's, of course they do. Of course, everybody cares about their patients. Um, but then when you really look at, well, what are you doing today? It's kind of like, oh, well, that is a big gap. It's a big, you know, black hole is what I hear all the time. It's a black hole. We don't know what's going on with them unless they come back. Yeah. So definitely I can see how this technology would, would kind of fill in that gap and it's, it's definitely a necessary component for tomorrow's surgery and yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Definitely. Okay. Do you have any other thoughts on readmissions that you wanted to share or? Uh, no, I am all out of readmission thoughts today. <laughs> I think we can summarize it, readmission bad, <laughs> monitoring good, <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And and uh, 
surgery in the future will be all taking place at home and, and by all these mobile stations moving around. I think that's really awesome. Um, all right. Well, I think we'll we'll leave it there. I think we've we've hit some some good points in there about readmissions. Um, Dr. Joshua Liu, it's been a pleasure again. Thank you so much for joining on this episode. And uh, folks at home, if if you have heard anything on here that you want to dig in a little bit deeper, we'll include everything in the show notes so you can take a look at the the detailed breakdown there. Um, if there's anything to do with readmissions that you think, hey, this might solve it as well feel free to, to drop us a comment and, and we can start the dialogue there. Awesome. Thank you, Alan. Thanks, Josh. See ya. See ya.